I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners, crack out the eggnog, get drunk off that eggnog, sit by the fireplace and enjoy yourself. I'm a little tipsy myself right now because we're celebrating the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Well, I don't know, it's it's a tie between a lot of other Christmas movies I love, including Black Christmas, Silent Night, Deadly Night, uh, you know, anyways, 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 we're talking about a true holiday classic. Robbie Martin of Media Roots Radio returns to the show to talk with yours truly about Gremlins and its insane sequel, Gremlins 2, The New Batch. This is a much more laid-back episode. We just get into it and talk about our love for the little green monsters that haunt our nightmares and, of course, the furry little guy named Gizmo the Mogwai that we all wanted as a pet growing up. And I guess we sort of got it with that ripoff. You know, I think it was called Furby, right? Oh, and of course I swoon for the immortal Phoebe Cates during this conversation. My God! As Uncle Jesse from Full House would say, have mercy! I can't believe I just made a Full House reference. I hate that show. Anyways, this is a fun episode, so let's get right to it. Robbie, Martin, and I celebrate the holidays gremlin style. Welcome back to Parallax Views. Robbie Martin of Media Roots Radio and the documentary A Very Heavy Agenda. Uh, we're going to be talking about a holiday classic and its uh, less holiday-themed sequel. We're talking about Gremlins. How are you doing, Robbie? 
doing great. Thanks for having me on again, JG. It's been a while. <laughs> yes, it has. Uh, so I know that Gremlins, I, I've always heard that it's one of your favorite uh, sort of holiday movies. So what was your first experience with the Joe Dante classic produced by Steven Spielberg, Gremlins? You know, I actually can't remember. I don't remember or have a specific memory of the very first time I saw it, but I do remember feeling like it was probably the most hardcore, scary horror movie that I watched at that young of an age. I probably, I'm guessing I was probably like, I want to say maybe like six or seven years old when I first saw it. And it was, um, it, I, I think I even knew at the time, like, oh, I can handle this, you know, as like a kid, but I still found it really scary. Um, I found it even gory. Like there's some scenes in that movie that are fairly, you know, gross and, and grotesque for a little kid. And so I felt, I felt almost like cool in a way being that young and being able to like watch it. And I think I would, I try to remember if I would close my eyes at the very last scene in the fountain, because that's probably like the goriest scene in the whole movie where like spoilers um, where uh, what's his name? Stripe basically just melts. It gets like electrocuted in the fountain and like, you know, melts and it's like skull. It's pretty cool. Like practical effects, almost like a, they, they, they're filling up like a fake gremlin skull with like a, with air and like almost like they're using some like weird air compression effects to like make it look like his skull is like gelatinous and stuff like that. Um, and I remember being very like shocked by that. I remember, um, I remember feeling almost like it was almost like a spiritual sequel to ET at the time. Like it really, it oh, reminded so. That's me a lot of ET. yeah, I think probably because, I probably just assumed, and I didn't know anything about Steven Spielberg or anything at the time, but I probably just assumed it was like made by the same person. Um, it felt, I mean, at the time it feels very much like a Spielbergian movie. I mean, it has like all the ingredients, the music feels very Spielbergian, the matte paintings, the sort of the casting, um, some of the adult themes in it, but also for kids. Um, but yeah, I remember, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of what, else, what other early reactions I had of it. Um, I, I think I probably got, as a kid, I got some aspects of it confused with ET, and I'm trying to I'm trying to remember why. And I don't, other than Gizmo being like a cute, you know, supernatural creature, and the kids interacting with them, and you know, showing them off and stuff like that. I don't really know if there's another real resemblance there at all. Maybe. Maybe just the vibes, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, similar time period. Um, you know, Poltergeist, I'll, I'll just throw that out there because I know we're talking about grandmas, but Poltergeist was another movie around the same time that I was brave enough to be able to watch all the way through and feel like a badass kid for, you know, this is like a horror movie that I can handle. And maybe, I mean, I know Gremlins had to have been intended also for kids, but I don't think Poltergeist was. Um yeah, they're all around the same two. time too, right? Like Gremlins is eighty four, yeah. ET is eighty two. So yeah, yeah, um, and you know, I think I probably that the, probably the most memorable part to me when I first saw the movie, honestly, was the dad's inventions. I remember, like as a kid, that was really amusing to me. The inventions that don't loved, work. <laughs> yeah, the inventions that don't work, and I loved 
watching that. Like I would, I would just get immense pleasure watching those, like the orange juice machine, the, the coffee maker that like was basically like producing like black, like black tar heroin out of like a nozzle or something like that. Um, and I thought the bathroom buddy, I thought was like hilarious. I, that was that kind of humor, like really landed on me as a kid. Yeah. I was always a big fan of it growing up. I used to watch it back to back with the sequel. And then I actually wore out the VHS tape of the sequel, but it, it's uh, one thing that's weird about it is growing up like the holiday stuff in it. I mean, it takes place around Christmas, which it makes sense, right? Because it gets darker around, you know, Christmas time during the winter. So that gives a good excuse for, you know, the gremlins to sort of get out there into the the small town they invade um, because, you know, sundown happens sooner. Uh, but I never I don't think I ever like really uh, clung on to the like holiday element of it uh, until I got like older, you know, that, that was always very much in the background for me. But I, I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is do you consider it a holiday movie? I do. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, if people, if people want to, to uh, hammer, hammer away at Die Hard being a Christmas movie, then like Gremlins is like a Christmas movie by like tenfold. I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of snow settings, the first time Corey Feldman is introduced, it's actually what, probably one of the more palatable Corey Feldman roles that has held up over time, where he's not too obtrusive. The main, he's not the main character, so he's tolerable. Uh, but the first time you see him, he's like hiding inside of a Christmas tree, right? Or am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, yeah, he's he's in the Christmas yeah. tree, and the, the guy's asking, "Why are you in a Christmas tree?" You know, his dad's working him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and honestly, the movie, I mean, I do think these movies all have sit in a similar realm. Now that I'm thinking about it, there's a little bit of, like, Goonies aesthetic, too. In that beginning of that movie, it's like, Corey Feldman's here, and he's doing some weird shit, you know, hiding in a Christmas tree. It just kind of starts in this way. It's like, oh, what is this weird kid up to? Um, you know, other than that, there's really not really any resemblance to Goonies, but, you know, probably just because he's in it. It's kind of family friendly, but also it's sort of trying to be dark and scary and kind of, you know, a little bit more dark for kids. Um, and and uh, I mean, I think I probably, you know, and I don't know if you want to talk about Waxwork, but I remember being really excited when I first saw the movie Waxwork and realized that um, the main actor from Gremlins was in it. Like he's the main character. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, He's not really cast very much in movies anymore, um, you know. And I—it's interesting because like he wasn't a kid in that movie; he was already grown man. Um, and he's—he plays a perfectly serviceable lead, uh, you know. Um, there's just so many things to love about Gremlins, but yeah, the holiday aspect of it. I mean, yeah, it's so much a holiday movie. And honestly, like things I didn't appreciate about it when I was a kid, I really appreciate now. Like the way that the neighborhood is shot, for example, um, they really dialed in a really specific sort of dark, but also like happy festive look. Like when you look at the way those neighborhoods are shot, the Christmas lights, the glow they give off, sort of the fogginess in the, in the street settings is very, very specific. Like they were trying to go for like, you know, kind of creepy Christmas look. Um, and it's subtle and it, it works really well. Um, and there's really... There's nothing in the mood, like the whole small town vibe of it gives it a nice, like low key feel. 
there's nothing in the movie that's like over the top Christmas. Like I don't think Santa Claus is in it or there's not like, you know, I don't even know if we even hear a Christmas song at any point during the movie. Um, it's just sort of the backdrop for it, but it's, it works beautifully. And obviously, I mean, the whole premise of it is his father is trying to buy him like the ultimate Christmas gift, like, you know, a unique one of a kind gift. So it's kind of baked into the plot, but, um, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, and, uh, all the stuff, the little things that they do that are sort of Christmas related throughout the movie is brilliant. Like, um, when, I don't remember if it's Stripe or one of the gremlins is like in the Christmas tree, like fucking like attacking the mom. Oh the yeah. Yeah. The like fight scene. Yeah. 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 And all the, I mean that dude. Oh, I was just going to say when I said there's no Christmas songs in the movie, I'm technically wrong because one of the best scenes of the whole movie is when it plays. Do you hear what I hear when she's like fighting the gremlins in the house by herself? Yeah. Absolutely and the build up to that scene. is like really, uh, the buildup in that scene to actually seeing the gremlins is like really intense. It is so. And then, and then the fact that they make, yeah, they make you wait honestly for a really long time to even see the gremlin. It just gets more and more over the top. So at first you're, you know, if you have no idea what this movie's like, you might just think, Oh, there's going to be a few gremlins. It's going to be kind of a slasher monster movie, but it's, it, I mean, the original gremlins that people don't remember, it also goes to like cartoonish and over the top levels. Well, it's, it's a comedy, but it's also a horror movie. Yeah, exactly. And it's a comedy horror movie in a way that I don't think people know how to do anymore or they don't do it like that anymore. It's primarily, I don't even say it's primarily a horror movie. It just has, the, it strikes the right tone. It's not trying to be um, self-referential. They're not breaking the fourth wall. They're not, you know, so pop culture jokes. It's like a lot of horror comedy movies these days they have a very specific template, you know, for doing it. And let's just compare it to another decent modern Christmas horror movie, Krampus, um, which is, which is good, but it's all, but I would say that movie is much more of a comedy. It leans much more into the, you know, we know we're a comedy. Um, we're going to wink and nod at that. Gremlins manages to strike just such a perfect tone where it's funny, but it's not like you're not laughing I don't know how to explain it, but it's, it feels, it's a perfect blend of the two. Um, and, you know, other, there's been a lot of horror comedy over the years. I'm a big fan of Sam Raimi. Evil Dead 2, you know, could be arguably considered a horror comedy. I just don't think, and that's a very good one, I think. I just don't think very many filmmakers manage to strike that proper balance where it's like, oh, this is like, you know, this is just not some, it's not like a, a, a pitch where it's like at the top, it's like horror comedy. You know, it's like... <laughs> it feels like it's more, much more than that. And they managed to wrangle both tones perfectly. Um, I think that's one of the most impressive things about the original movie. The second one, I think it's a little too comedic and that's, even though I like that about it, I still really, really like that balance um, in the first one. Yeah. It's interesting in the first movie too, because um, small town America gets really skewered a lot in that movie there's a lot of like cultural jabbing going on. Like, um, you know, when you have the scene with uh, Gizmo, the the Mogwai in the police station, and he's very clearly extremely miserable around these yeah. cops and the cops are like, well, look, he's a patriotic little guy waving the flag. And you see Gizmo there being like, I don't want to be here. <laughs> like, I don't like you people. And then you have the evil real estate woman uh, who gets her comeuppance in the end. But 
there's a lot of skewering of like the dark side of small town America throughout the movie. And I really like that as well. I love that too. And yeah, and it's, and I'd say it's done probably the least subtle version of what you're talking about is, um, I forget his name, the neighbor, uh, the, the guy. Oh, Murray Futterman. About. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the sort of racist, but almost, he's like an Archie Bunker type guy almost. Yeah. It's like he's racist, but doesn't, I, I don't know if he actually drops anything overtly racist, but it's all around the edges of what he's saying throughout the movie. Like even the very first interaction he has with Billy is like, um, he's like all oh, these cars. He, is he like talking about it's like a, not an American car or something? Yeah. He's like the foreigners put gremlins <laughs> into the cars. Huh? Yeah. 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 Um, he's not like a completely unlikable character. That's what's weird about it too. You know? No, he's not. And that actor, I mean, he's, that people oh, Dick don't Miller. Argue. Yeah, he's in everything. <laughs> and Dick Miller is in, he has a cameo in a, pretty much every single Joe Dante film. Yeah. Too. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, he's, he's great in it. And even like the competitive, like the, even like the way that his bank job is, like the other employees at the bank are like just pieces of shit. You yeah, know, Judge he's like, Reinhold uh, yeah, from Judge Fast Times at Ridgemont <laughs> And he's like the only good guy at the bank, you know, except for what's her face. She, wait, no, she doesn't work at the bank. Um, she's a bartender, uh, Phoebe Cates' character. But, um, but yeah, no, you're right. It's, it really does. They have a little things all throughout that sort of skewer that. Um, and it's great. I, I was going to say, since we mentioned Phoebe Cates, my, my God, uh, you know, I think she was one of my early crushes. Um, just in Gremlins, not even Fast Time at Ridgemont High. Uh, you know, she was just absolutely stunning. And, and she, you know, it's not like she's dressed in the, the bikini outfit like in Fast Time. She is just like really captivating on screen. And uh, I love that scene with her uh, where she goes off about why she hates Christmas. I know you wanted to bring that up because you had some ideas about it. I did. I'm going to put this out here on your podcast now because I've, I've never said this publicly before. But I would say that there's a Gremlins prequel movie that's ripe for the taking that would have no Gremlins in it, but would be a direct tie-in to the first movie. And it would be a pretty dark horror movie, pretty brutal, pretty, you know, it would, it would, be, it would be a rough watch. But basically, it would be just recreating the story that, that Phoebe Cates' character tells about how her father spoilers for people who haven't seen Gremlins, that how her father, she hates Christmas because uh, her father tried to pretend to be Santa Claus and go down the chimney to surprise her and her family. And he got stuck in the chimney and died. And basically the way they discovered him as a story she tells is that they smelled a funny smell that dad was missing. They didn't know where he went. And then they realized that the smell was the decomposing corpse of their father dressed as Santa Claus in the chimney. Um, yeah, I mean, it would be a really simple, basic movie, but I still think that someone should uh, make a Gremlins prequel that's little girl Phoebe Cates and her family and her dad uh, dying in the chimney. Um, you don't have to call it Gremlins. I don't know what you call it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's a brilliant... I, what I, the, the reason why that story sticks with me so strongly is because it's the scariest part of the movie. Um, by far. And as a kid, that was, I mean, that really stuck with me. 
that that was the take like I didn't have nightmares about gremlins. I didn't get freaked out about them after the movie, but I would think about that story all the time. I mean, it really was haunting. And then they, they kind of parody it in gremlins too, which is, I, I kind of like the way they do it. It's funny, but it's also a little bit of a bummer. Cause like that, because it's just, it, to me, it's like the strongest part of the horror in gremlins one. Right. Right. Yeah. They parody in it where, where she, uh, <laughs> She's like, don't mention Lincoln's birthday. Don't mention Lincoln's birthday. It was horrible. I, I remember he looked exactly like, and, and, and Zach Galligan's like, not this again, and pushes her off the screen. <laughs> but you know what? The, the original scene in um in Gremlins with her, uh, where she's talking about this, it comes from like out of nowhere almost. You know, it's hinted at that she doesn't like Christmas, but then she just tells that story, and it, it's sort of like a curveball in a way. It's like a really spooky, airy moment. It is, yeah. And the, and the setting that they're walking in, I mean, I think that that's probably maybe why that the, the, the outdoor setting sticks out to me so much now because of that. You know, they're walking through the neighborhood. You see the Christmas lights, kind of foggy. And, you know, even as like a young adult, I probably didn't really even notice things, the subtleties like that. Um, but you really realize, I mean, like, I consider myself like an aspiring filmmaker. Like, I, you know, hope to make like a, a full length film someday. And I, the more, the older I get, the more like I learn about film, the more I'm like a really appreciative of like just the way Gremlins was shot. I mean, as far as a Joe Dante, like Joe Dante's filmography, it's, I don't know, it's probably one of the more thoughtfully shot, you know, as far as the cinematography goes, than compared to like his other films. Um, and maybe that's maybe what gives it more of like a Spielbergian quality to it. Um, it feels a little more like, you know, the setting and the visual look of the setting is like very important. I mean, even, right, right. Even well, that, and I mean, Spielberg helped produce it. So, well, of course. Yeah. And for people who don't know Joe Dante and he was among a group of filmmakers, Robert Zemeckis was another one that was kind of be like. Spielberg taking them under their wing and trying to sort of launch them out there, like, you know, give this guy a bigger budget to do these movies. And, and, you know, Robert Zemeckis obviously got a lot bigger than Joe Dante, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it would be interesting to know how much Spielberg was actually involved in Gremlins. When you watch old promotional materials for it, it almost seems like he's the one behind, like he's kind of acting like it's his movie. Um, right. I don't know if you've seen any of his interviews, but you know he must have had he must have had a pretty strong involvement in it. But maybe he did. You know, I don't want to shortchange Joe Dante because, I mean, a movie like Inner Space, um, which came out in the later '80s, is like shot beautifully, extremely competent filmmaking in almost every direction, and it's like a pretty strong movie. I mean, it's not. You know, there's not really any flaws in in terms of the filmmaking it's really well made um yeah i I was gonna say with with gremlins i do see dante's fingerprints on it like where where you have i mean you'll have scenes where um you know zach galligan and gizmo are watching the tv and they're watching like an old 50s movie Uh, or you'll have a scene where someone has a cartoon on in the background and that's something dante would do in all his early films like um the howling and piranha so i see his fingerprints there but I definitely see the Spielberg fingerprints as well. I think that Dante um, definitely directed the movie. Like it, it's very different than, uh, say, a movie like Poltergeist, which I, I think 
you know, the controversy about Poltergeist is did Toby Hooper really direct it? Uh, because yeah. Spielberg said he directed most of it. And I think that that's probably true in the case of Poltergeist. But my, my impression of Gremlins is that Dante directed it, but there was probably that heavy Spielberg influence. Yeah, and also I would imagine that he, pro- I mean, he's, he, I would imagine Joe Dante was probably better at channeling what Spielberg wanted um, than, than, you know, someone like Toby, Ho- Toby Hooper was. So, I, I mean, yeah, it feels very much like a Joe Dante movie. Um, it has those Spielberg touches. And, I mean, what's also brilliant in it is I think the score is, uh, is really good. It's really silly at times. Um, yeah, that theme probably, song always gets stuck in my head. Yeah. And for the longest time, there wasn't actually a soundtrack of the complete score of the movie. Um, so I probably, you know, had a version of it that just had that theme song on it. Maybe some of the more like whimsical, like there's a lot of classical kind of s- stuff in the movie that's pretty, you know, normal, but there's also a lot of like, really weird synthesizer stuff that um you kind of don't notice i mean it's at least you mean me, like, like when, the, really... when when like you remember the pool scene where the gremlins oh, all yeah, end up what, in the pool you have that that's what I'm like the weird yeah. synthesizer yeah it's really effective it, too it's really effective and also what i find kind of interesting about it is it's you don't even notice it because it, it's subtle enough but it's like it's a pretty kind of brave choice. Like, like Jerry Goldsmith is literally using like cat, like samples of cats crying and meowing in the music. Like he'll like, there's like samples of like, like, like just going over these synthesizers. And it, I mean, you listen to it on its own and it's so abstract and weird. You're like, I don't even, how did this fit in the movie? But it's, it really works. Like it's, it's an inter- interesting mixture of kind of almost like Jerry or um, like John Williams, the classical stuff, another kind of Spielberg touch and, and just weird, I don't know, kind of cartoony, but creepy, you know, sort of evil whimsical music where I guess in another reality, it would be kind of almost like what Danny Elfman's kind of started going for later, but it's like all synthesizer stuff. Um, and I love it. I mean, and you can, there's actually a two CD version of the soundtrack that's that got released like five years ago that I managed to grab and it's it's fantastic. Um, I recommend checking it out. So I was gonna say, I mean, in order to talk about Gremlins, we always have to address the, I guess, the controversies around the film. So we were talking about this a bit off air with, you know, the key Luke character, Mister Wing, and the sort of mystical Chinaman sort of trope. Uh, but there's also people that have complained that they think the gremlins are like a stand-in for like black youths involved in gang activity. Yeah. I mean, what do you think of all that? I'm just curious. Well, I've heard that. I've obviously, I, I've, I've seen commentary saying that it's a stand-in for black people. Um, I don't, I don't see that when I'm watching the movie. Um, I've tried to see it, but I can't deny that there is one, there's at least one gremlin in that bar scene. That's like, like a black, supposed to be a black guy. And he's like wearing sunglasses. And I, I don't, I can't remember the scene exactly. It's kind of, I think it's trying to be like, he's like a cool jazz, like black jazz gremlin or something. Yeah. There's that. Uh, and then there's the, I mean, that whole bar scene is really 
unusual. You know, they're they're like yeah. playing cards, smoking. You have the jazz gremlin, then you have like the robber gremlin yeah. with the ski mask. See, I don't. I mean, I guess I don't. May I mean, I guess putting myself into the eighties, like if I was like a maybe a reactionary adult in the eighties, I could see that 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 might have been the intention. But I mean, it also just works as like crazy cartoon behavior it's like if you're going to put gremlins in a situation that's like what are the most extreme and crazy things they can do that's that's kind of what they have them do yeah well they're they're like they're Um, basically supposed to be completely atavistic sort of creatures you know they they just they do what they do because they have no controls they have no impulse control yeah and that's i mean and and that's when the movie i mean like up until that point in the movie you can almost I mean, yeah, it's got some comedy elements, uh, but it's mostly pretty standard, you know, uh, horror movie pacing, or I guess. And then when that scene happens, the mo- I mean, it's pretty clearly you're entering like kind of a different territory of movie. I mean, and I mean, I, I don't know. I, I still love that scene. Um, I still think it's, it's mostly hilarious. I love how Phoebe Cates is like trying to, uh, you know, like serve everybody and like keep everything together in the bar while it's happening. Um, and then the, of course the snow white scene, I mean, what a great scene, you know, that they're all singing, um, uh, Hey ho, hi ho. And then, uh, they blow up the whole movie theater. I mean, I, I remember even as a kid thinking that was like really fucking cool. Um, just never seen anything like that before, especially, you know, the, them watching snow white, um, in the in the theater was was a really cool a uh, touch too um well even the little and, tricks that dante uses like um you know like when they're in the theater and they're about to chase uh zach galligan and phoebe cates and gizmo you know you sort of see them on the screen like their silhouettes running at the, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah yeah and th- there's ways he like doesn't show you the gremlins all the time you know and and he he's very aware of like how to work with limitations Absolutely. And there's only, from what I understand, there's only like one distinct money shot of all the gremlins sort of freestanding in its stop motion. Like they're running up the street. You know what I'm talking about? Um, it's miniatures. And I think Joe Dante uh, has said openly that that scene actually got really fucked up. The lighting that they had going supposed to be like much more lit than it was it turns off or the light burns out like one third through the scene so if you watch it and it actually it kind of works it almost looks like the gremlins presence is like turning off the street lights or like making them glitch out as they're like running up to the camera um and they just left it in the movie like that i mean so yeah i mean just again it's like you would never notice something like that's a mistake in your, in your brain. You're almost thinking it's on purpose when you're watching it. Um, but I could see, you know, even if Spielberg shepherded picture, you know, it's like, we're not going to do this whole stop motion scene again. You know, like <laughs> there's, I don't know how many gremlins are in that scene, but it looks like they're hand animating. Like, you know, it's like a little Ray Harryhausen moment, but it's like 60 gremlins or something, you know? So probably, probably took an enormous amount of work. Um, but I mean, they're just the movie is just filled with so many amazing scenes. Um, 
I mean, even like the stuff with the science teacher and like trying to sort of, you know, almost treating this like it's a kid bringing in like his like, science experiment or his pet. Um, it's, it's great. And uh, yeah, I love all that stuff. Um, I, I have nothing but great things to say about grandma. <laughs> I, w- I was going to say too, I, <laughs> I, I always thought the uh, Mr. Wing character played by Key Luke, who for people that don't know, uh, Key Luke playing the the sort of mystical Chinaman character. I, I mean, it's it's a really racist trope. I get why they cast him because uh, he was actually Lee Chan in the uh, Charlie Chan films. He played Kato in the original Green Hornet film serials in the 30s and 40s. Um, he was in uh, Kung Fu with David Carradine. Uh, but what's weird about his character is like, yeah, they're, it's doing the same thing that Big Trouble in Little China does, where it plays with these old, like, um, yellow peril type stereotypes. But the, the funny thing is it sort of subverts all that because really it's the dumb white people that cause all the problem. You know, Key Luke is telling them throughout the whole movie is Mr. Wing, you know, well, not the whole movie, but at the beginning, he's like, you know, you don't know what you're dealing with with, with this Mogwai and, you know, it's too much responsibility and, they don't listen to him, you know. So, I, I always thought it was interesting because it sort of is a movie where, uh, you know, the small town white people don't listen to uh, someone that that knows what's up. Absolutely, and uh, it's cool too. Like the very opening shot of Chinatown, um, or wherever that Chinatown is supposed to be. I don't know. Is it supposed to be in New York, or do they ever say where they go, where he's going at the beginning to buy the Mogwai? Yeah, um, he's in uh, really, the Chinatown section of New York, yeah. Okay, yeah, it's a really cool opening shot, um, really nicely shot, and and the guy won't, he refuses to sell the Mogwai to the father. He says he, he says it's not for sale, and as he's leaving the shop, kind of disappointed that he, you know, couldn't get this awesome gift for his son, the, the kid of the shop owner comes out and he's like, you know, he, he kind of subverts his dad and sells it to him on the side. Um and it's interesting too. The dad, you know, I don't know if it's I don't know if you can see it as a critique on capitalism because it's not really. But the dad is like an absent father who is sort of pushing these inventions. But the but the mom and the son have like no ill will towards him. They think he's great, and he just drops off this. You know, he wants to be like a cool father, even though he's like not home all the time. Brings his son this really cool gift, and then just hightails it out of there again. Like he's basically gone for the whole movie as this gift that he bought his son is like causing all this chaos and he's like, has no idea it's happening. Um, I don't really know what commentary there is there, but I thought that's kind of interesting thing to throw into the movie. Well, Um, I was going to say too, with the capitalism thing, in a way the gremlins are like, they're hyper consumers, you know, in a capitalist society, they just consume everything. And there is, like I said, the whole thing with the, um, the real estate lady that wants to kill Billy's dog you know, I, I do think they're taking jabs at, you know, capitalism in that way. Yeah. And how fucked up is it that, like, you actually, when Mrs. Deedle gets killed by the Gremlins, you almost, they almost kind of put you in a position to be like, oh, God, they're really going to do this to her? Like, Jesus, you all of a sudden see her as this frail old lady with a, what's that thing called that goes up the stairs? Which is, I don't think I've ever seen that. Oh, the chair, movie. the electric chair that goes up the stairs takes her up and down the I, I don't know. I have to be honest. I cheered when that happened in the movie. I was like, ah, finally, you get what you deserve. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think Joe Dante was like almost trying to be like the Gremlins are like so brutal. Like 
I mean, but, but then again, it's like cartoon. The way she dies, it's like a cartoon. You know, she right. they 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 yeah, <laughs> they turn the lever up all the way, and she just goes flying out the window. Um, really good. I mean, I I, I can't think. Has, has, have you ever? Can you think of another movie with one of those kind of chairs in it that, that plays? No, I actually like, can't think of another movie like that where where you yeah. Know, you have an elderly character going up and down the steps through like a moving chair. Yeah. And then the fact that they're like, that she's going downstairs to yell at them because she thinks they're caroling children. I think I'm from, I'm remembering correctly. That was like why she answers the door. Yeah. And then she (laughs) sees the gremlins. She's like, I don't want to die. I don't want to (laughs) die. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. And I like, I also like how, you know, a lot of movies don't do this, but I like how the Gremlins does it, where they don't really, it never goes to a scale beyond just this family, um, a few of their friends and colleagues. You never see like, oh, it's in the news, like the Gremlins are attacking the town or, you know, even the cops act pretty out of it and don't seem like taking it very seriously. And I like that aspect of it. Um, you know, I don't know. So then... I don't know if, if you have anything else you want to say about Gremlins, because we should talk about Gremlins too. Um, I don't know if there's anything else I can say about Gremlins, um, other than I, I will watch any movie with Phoebe Cates. Uh, she could look good modeling in a potato sack. Uh, she's incredible, but uh, I, I will stop being that guy now. Uh, Gremlins 2, though, <laughs> you know, Gremlins 2 is just, it's like Joe Dante just said, you know, I'm going to throw everything at the wall and create total anarchy. And I get why some people don't like that, but I, I also just thought it, it, if you're going to make a sequel, you might as well just go all out insanity. Absolutely. And I mean, I don't think, I can't think of another movie in history where the sequel is almost like a satire or a parody in some way of the original. I mean, that that in and of itself is a pretty subversive thing to do. Yeah, it's, it's like very meta in its People who way. took the first one, yeah. Yeah, I was going to um, say Sorry, real quick, you got cut out there. I didn't, I didn't oh, I, I, I was going to say, it's very meta in a way. Like that scene where you have Zach Galligan mm-hmm. explaining, you can't feed them after midnight. And, you know, the, the workers at, at Clamp uh, at Clamp are just like, well, you know, what if the, the, the uh, gremlin gets food caught in its tooth uh, and then it pops out at like midnight? Uh, did they eat after midnight then? <laughs> like... It makes fun of the roles that are set up in the first movie. Yeah, and I even think, if I'm remembering correctly, I think the that scene was actually in the trailer for Gremlins 2. So it was like they were making it very well known that they were making fun of themselves, like even in the marketing for it. Um, and another Joe Dante favorite uh, actor who's pretty much in all of his movies is Robert Picardo. And he's also he's hilarious from Star Trek, Gremlins right? He, I think he's also the plays the holographic doctor in Star Trek, one of the best, one of the only really good characters on Voyager. Yeah. Um, and he's also plays the werewolf in the howling. I think that, I think he was in, I, I'm remembering correctly. He does. He does. The war of transformation scene is with him in the howling. Um, well, he, he's the werewolf. Like, but he's also like uh, in the howling. He's like a serial killer, right? That's, that's going around making snuff films and like other weird stuff, tormenting, uh, D. Wallace's character, and this is like a complete 180 from that. You know, Gremlins 2 is him doing pure comedy. He's sort of this buffoonish, thuggish employee of, like, the billionaire. Yeah. 
Yeah, is he even in Gremlins One? I can't remember. No, he's not in he Gremlins One. No, I, I he sort of reminds me of the Judge Ryan yeah. character, though. You know, but oh yeah, 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 for sure. He he is pretty and funny the, the in casting it, though. of Christopher Lee. I mean, it's it, I mean, I I think I was probably the first time as a kid I had even seen Christopher Lee. I didn't. I mean, obviously didn't understand the reference, Hammer Horror. You know, obviously Joe Dante was, you know, putting him in that role, a heavy, heavily referential thing. Um, but it's interesting now that I understand who Chris Lee is, like just watching it now, I just had no idea. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that whole lab, the, the laboratory inside that building is almost like, it's almost designed like a cartoon. I mean, it's sort of, you know, I think, again, it's, a lot of these things Joe Dante throws in Gremlins too remind me of his like love for cartoons and animation. Well, he starts the movie out with the cartoon. Like, does he? Yeah, with the uh, Donald. The uh, yeah, Daffy Duck and um, Bugs Bunny at the beginning of it. Okay. Like is it like a short or something that like starts the movie? Yeah, yeah. There's like a short at the beginning where Daffy Duck's like, "You get to open all these Warner Brothers movies. It's my turn now." And then the the Warner Brothers logo smashes him and then it you know breaks apart and we get the title card Gremlins to the new batch. Wow, interesting. Well, I will say that one of the, probably the, one of the most impressive things to me about Gremlins 2, uh, because it took me a long time to even put this together, is that the VHS release of it, which I'm sure you know very well, and versus the theatrical release of it has two completely different versions of the gremlins taking over the movie because in the theatrical version you're watching the movie and then all of a sudden the gremlins start like messing with the screen and laughing on the screen and you see that sort of silhouette effect that you're talking about from the first movie but in the vhs version it actually starts what looks like a real tracking error of some kind starts in the and then you it, like you get you're all of a sudden in some old west uh duel or, or shooting match between gremlins I, am i remembering that right yeah it's it's uh it's gremlins and then they got john wayne okay. and john wayne has to stop the gremlins i don't remember the first time i saw I, that was the first time i saw the movie was the vhs so i thought okay. to myself oh my god did something happen to the vhs rental i got you know i yeah. mean i, I almost so lost you... my shit you know? <laughs> oh yeah i mean i lost my shit because i I had never. I just. I mean, I had already known that there was a scene in the movie where that movie basically breaks the fourth wall, but I didn't. It was. It was a completely different scene than the one I had remembered. Have you seen the 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 theatrical version? I have seen the theatrical version where they have to get Hulk Hogan to tell the Gremlins that, to stop and roll the movie. Yeah, which was is brilliant. I mean, as far as like a random celebrity cameo, it was like so fucking perfect to have Hulk Hogan be the. I was going to say, there's a lot of weird cameos in the movie if you watch for them. Like, um, there's Hulk Hogan, and then also, uh, the you remember the janitor that gets the water on Gizmo? That's John yeah, Aston was... from uh, Return of the Killer Tomatoes, and um, Go he was Gomez Adams in the original Adams Family. So he no has, way. like, an uncredited cameo in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all kinds of weird cameos. Leonard Moulton shows up reviewing Gremlins, and the Gremlins murder him. And he's reviewing, he, isn't Leonard Moulton the one like interviewing the smart gremlin at some no, point? No, 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 no. There's, uh, that's another character. Um, Fred, the guy that's, uh, 
the guy that that's like a TV horror host that decides, oh, now this these gremlins are taking over. I'll try to become a newscaster by covering this, and he covers oh, yeah. it in the Dracula suit. Yeah, 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 which is really good. And then they have like almost they, there's a lot of like '80s. I mean, they also don't they have a character in it that's making fun of um, what's her face, that famous TV chef who's all who was like people thought was like drunk all the time. Yeah, 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 they do. I, I remember the, the food scene yeah. there, yeah. And there also is, I will say, to the movie's non-credit, I believe it's the actor who plays Long Duck Dong is also in Gremlins 2 as like a generic stereotype, like Asian tourists who are just taking pictures of everything all the time. <laughs> so, so there's a little bit of that in this movie, but other than that... Um, I mean, yeah, all the parodies, all the skewering they do of people, it's it seems very ahead of its time, honestly. Yeah, and- I was going to say real quick, I mean, I remember when I first saw it with my dad, we're watching the, the scene with Christopher Lee, and they're introducing the Bat Gremlin, and they just cut to Christopher Lee making this face like, huh, th- this is familiar, you know? <laughs> There's a lot of like, and that that was, I didn't know who Christopher Lee was until then, and then my dad's like, oh yeah, he's making that face because... He played Dracula, and it's reminiscent, you know, seeing this vampire bat gremlin reminds him of, you know, playing Dracula. There's a lot of fourth wall breaking and in-jokes throughout the movie. There is, yeah. Um, I, I'm i trying to remember what I didn't like about the movie when I first saw it. Because, there, were, I mean, let's just say as a kid, when I first saw it as a kid, so I grew up, I was born in 81. And when I first saw it, I remember being really confused. Like, a lot of it went over my head. I remember being annoyed at, I, I for some reason, I didn't like all those other gizmo-esque mogwai that were, like, like silly looking. Like, and I remember they had, like, a, like, McDonald's Happy Meal toys of all those, like, weird looking, like, gizmo-esque gremlins. And I don't know why that, like, that was like a bug up my butt, even as a little kid. Like, I wanted, I think I just wanted Gizmo or the other Mogwai to look like Gizmo. And this is, maybe this is me, my autistic child brain latching onto something back then. But I remember thinking, wait, why do the other Mogwai not look like, just like Gizmo, like they do in their first movie? Because they never really explained that. It's like, in the first movie, except for Stripe, all the Gremlins, all the Mogwai look pretty much identical right but all of a sudden in gremlins 2 i was like wait a second (laughs) why do these why do these all look like different characters um and i thought i was missing something i thought maybe are they a different type of gremlin so i would get i remember getting up in my head like even as a kid being like thrown off by that um but then of of course i would just like oh give me more spider gremlin give me more light electricity gremlin give me um you know, bat gremlin. Like when, as soon as those things came out, it's like, give me more. I want more of that. Um, and I don't know if you ever, I don't know how big of a fan you are of like movie memorabilia or props and stuff like that. But uh, the guy from Mythbusters, I forget his name. Um, he, he does a lot of like movie prop stuff where he'll go to like those auction houses and look at some obscure, but really cool ass props. And probably the coolest episode I saw of him doing that was, he went to an auction house that actually has the spider gremlin, like the original spider gremlin miniature. And it looks, it, the detail, the paint job on it looks 
incredible. Like it's, you know, it's, it's worn out a little bit, you know, it's like 30 years old now or whatever, but like to think of the amount of ingenuity and craftsmanship that went into just like a single little minute, you know, character for that, those movies, it's very impressive. It just makes kind of, in a way it kind of makes you sad to realize like how that you just, do not see that kind of craftsmanship. Yeah, everything is CGI it's now. Crazy. Yeah, everything is CGI, or it's you know, yeah, or it's just not. It's just not that. I mean, even if people are still doing miniatures and stuff, they're not going to do that. Um, and yeah, it's it sucks, but um, but it's also interesting. One of the I'd wanted to mention Gremlins one again because they also do this in Gremlins two. Uh, until I understood more about special effects and stuff. I was, I remember being like really I, completely not broken by the fact that they were switching between three or four different like gizmo scales at, uh, when they would show him. So like there's the, there's the giant gizmo, which, you know, they're always meant to look small, but the giant version of gizmo is that one where you get like a really close up, almost like kind of grotesque looking like, like, um, slimy eye movements and stuff yeah i was like gonna that. say i think gizmo looks much cuter in the second one um but, i mean uh, i like yeah. gizmo in the first one but yeah no they definitely they definitely baby yoda him up in in part two a little bit because in the first one yeah he's more he's more of a gross little animal you know and the fact i also think maybe that's the only thing i don't like about the second movie is part of the charm of the first one is it's like immediately when these other mogwais appear you realize they're like bad versions of him you know like they're but they, even though they look exactly like him they're like there's something off about them like the way they're like they're stuffing their their mouth with food and stuff like um that's like i'd say that's probably one of my only complaints about like the way they did any of the creatures but again it's like such an over-the-top silly spectacle that you really can't complain about that i mean they have you know they have the smart gremlin uh, with the glasses, they have the the sexy woman gremlin, um, who basically, um, you know, of course, Robert Picardo is the one who gets Pepe Le Pew, um by by her at the end, um, which again is like another. It just seems like there's so many cartoon Looney Tunes references throughout the movie. They're hard to count them all. Um, probably one of the weirdest references, actually, the one that stands out to me that doesn't land for me, is the Rambo reference. And I don't, I don't, for some reason, it doesn't. I feel like that would one doesn't work, but all the other ones. <laughs> See, I kind of like the great. Rambo element, but I think it's just because I like seeing Gizmo like snap at the end, like he's been tortured through two movies, and he's just like, "I've had enough." <laughs> <laughs> but this is okay. Am I wrong? Am I? Is this a false memory, or do they actually play dialogue from Rambo? Yeah, they played at the beginning. He, he's watching That's... TV at the beginning. Before okay. uh, Mr. Wing takes the TV away from him and he sees Rambo and Rambo's like, when the war is happening, you have to bring the war home. Yeah. And Gizmo remembers that later on. Yeah. I mean, I remember as a kid actually being very disturbed by the way the movie started with the it's I think it's Robert Picardo going in there and like asking them to, you know, to sign the deed to, to give over the, the shop. And and they just demolish the building I, from what I remember. And it's, it's like Gizmo is like escaping. He's like, yeah. he, like, like he could, you know, he could have been killed. And I remember even as a kid thinking, wait, did they kill the old Chinese guy who owned the shop? Like, was he just in there? Was that ever, 
Did they ever? No, he that? dies a few weeks after they visit him. He dies a few weeks after, and then they okay, they decide, yeah. okay, no one's in the way of of building uh, this like real estate development thing anymore. You know, that's another interesting thing about the movie. I know in the original screenplay, the Daniel Clamp character, played by uh, the great John Glover, who would later go on to play um, Lionel Luther in Smallville, he was originally supposed to be a villain. That's composite of Ted Turner and Donald Trump. But what's weird is his character is so exuberant and like weirdly naive that you almost like he doesn't feel like a villain. He just feels like a really out there billionaire. No, he just but it's interesting because there's almost like a Musk. Like now that we're in the era of Elon Musk, there's almost like a naivete. Um, like emotional instability to him that reminds you more of like an Elon Musk than a than a Ted Turner or Donald Trump. Well, like I was going to he... say that there's like aspects, like the way John Glover read that role, I think is very different from how other people would have read it. Like there's one point yeah. where Daniel Clamp says, uh, after like all the, the pandemonium breaks out, he says to uh, Billy, Zach Galligan's character, you know, these are real human lives. These are real human lives being lost and affected. And then he just says, we're going to get a ton of lawsuits. <laughs> and like played by another <laughs> character, I think they would have leaned into him being like a villainous asshole who only cares about the lawsuits. But the way Glover plays it is almost like, I think he does care about people, but he's also just, he's just bizarre. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, for some reason, as you're talking, I keep thinking of his role in Scrooge because he plays like a, almost like a handler. Like he's supposed to be like a, like Bill Murray's like handler or something. I don't remember what his actual like role is, but he kind of, there's a similar vibe that he plays that role like too, like where he's sort of naive. He's kind of yuppie-ish. Um, but yeah, that, that actor in both of those movies is excellent. I mean, it's perfect casting. Um, and I don't, there's really no other new characters, I would say, in Gremlins 2 who, really stick with you a whole lot i mean like the newscaster guy is obviously like a funny addition um but i was gonna really say cool. one of the aspects that i love is dick miller comes back but he's kind of like a badass in this one he's like, i'm gonna fight the <laughs> gremlins this time yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and uh i guess the uh, the um the sexually harassing you know, because I, I kind of, am I, am I, was I reading this wrong or do they kind of almost make it seem like this, that Billy's boss is like sexually harassing him? Yeah, she's like, trying to make moves on him. And she yeah, yeah. give him the foot job in the, uh, <laughs> in the like, in the, in the weird restaurant that sells like chocolate <laughs> mousse cake. <laughs> the Canadian restaurant. <laughs> right yeah, 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 yeah. No, she's tr- totally trying to get with him. Yeah. I, I always thought it was funny because the characters in it, are also expressive in the same way that you see in a cartoon. And I think it's even more amplified than in the first movie. So like, you'll have a scene where, you know, that scene where Daniel Clamp and um, I, I forget the Marla, Marla Bloodstone, Billy's boss, they, they finally notice each other for the first time, or he notices her at the end. And, you know, it's love at first sight. And you just see the reaction shot with uh, Zach Galligan, Dick Miller, and uh, Phoebe Cates. And they're all just like, if Phoebe Cates like sticks her tongue out. There's a lot of like, like it's, it's very overreactive. They lean into like the, you know, comic overreaction element in that movie. They do. Yeah. I mean, 
and even the way that technology is portrayed is comical and and done in such a ham-fisted way but it's like it's actually like really prophetic in a way like the smart like the whole smart device era that we live in now like the base i mean that's one of the first movies or anything i ever saw which seems to have like commentary about how like the more we just try to make devices smart or interactive or technologically advanced like the more fucked up and like glitchy they'll get like I can't remember exactly what it is in the movie, but like I remember the elevators like talk to you. Um, I'm probably forgetting some other things, but there's definitely elements in it where it's like, oh yeah, like we figured all that, like the climate controlled aspect of the building. There's a lot of references to how they're very technologically advanced. You know, this is like a really cutting edge um, environment they're in, and they're all very. None proud of it of actually it. works. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You know, the, the clown yeah. character does kind of remind me now that you say it of like an Elon Musk. Like I could totally see Elon Musk trying to buy like a TV network and having a video made in case civilization collapses where you can be like, this is the final video we're showing. May you have a good yeah. life. <laughs> and it, apparently that was, a, that specifically was a direct reference to Ted Turner, wasn't it? That, that he actually was, like he has something like that or he had a real or some kind of cut together footage for CNN in case there was some kind of world disaster. I don't know, but I, that would not surprise me given Ted Turner. Yeah. There's a lot of Ted Turner jokes in there that people miss. Like for instance, you have um, grandpa Fred who becomes the newscaster in the Dracula suit. He says to Zach Galligan, Zach's like, why don't you show, uh, you know, um, like the classics like Dracula and Frankenstein and Grandpa Fred says to him, oh, that Daniel Clamp, he doesn't like showing any movies that are black and white. He wants everything to be in color. And at the time, yeah, yeah. Ted Turner was literally just buying up movies like Wizard of Oz and all these movies. So much so that his wrestling company, WCW, was modeling wrestlers based on the movies that Ted Turner bought. So he had like wrestlers coming out dressed as like the Wizard of Oz. Uh, you know. Wow. Yeah. Ted Turner was a weird guy. So anyways, you have reference to that in the film and, uh, you know, the, the fact that Ted Turner was trying to colorize all these classic movies was sort of alluded to in that one scene that I just mentioned. Uh, there's a lot of jokes in it that in a weird way that they were like so far ahead of their time that we forget them now. So, for instance, there's like a channel for everything. Uh, at, at, at Daniel Clamp's network. So they have like the archery channel, the food channel. Well, now we have like 500 channels. So the yeah. joke is kind of lessened by that now. It, it was very predictive programming in a weird way. It really was. And I, I think what's also brilliant about it is it doesn't rely, like if you watch a movie like that today, even Idiocracy, which as good as Idiocracy is and is, you know, subversive and, and it has some great commentary in there, it heavily relies on referencing real brands, pop culture, things that we're very familiar with. And this movie is kind of able to do a similar thing without leaning into that. It sort of stands as like a timeless kind of snapshot where you can really watch it in any decade and be like, oh yeah, this like this is this is, shit's all really resonant. You know, if you watch Idiocracy. 50 years from now, all the Starbucks and Taco Bell references, all those things are going to seem a little outdated, but this movie manages, I think it elevates itself by, you know, I don't even think there's any like Michael Jackson references. There's no references to mainstream pop culture 
directly that I'm aware. I mean, besides maybe the Hulk Hogan cameo, can you think of anything that's like referencing like a popular TV series or movie from that time or, or celebrity from that actual time period, like directly? Not really. Although, I, I mean, the one thing I do notice because it's in every Dante movie is he'll show like really old clips from old movies. Uh, like, in the first one, he shows the invasion of the body snatchers. They're, you know, um, Billy and Billy, Zach Galligan's character, and Gizmo are watching uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers with uh, Kevin McCarthy yelling about, you know, the aliens are coming. And they sort of do that in the second one where, you know, uh, 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 Grandpa Fred is showing the Octopus Man movie, which was an actual movie from the 70s. Yeah. But not, yeah, not in terms of like newer references, I guess. I mean, there's the Batman thing, right? Where you know that, the background yeah. breaks out of the the uh, laboratory and makes the Batman symbol, which in a way is almost like, oh, you want us to do a Batman tie-in in our movie? Okay, we'll we'll do one, and then it's just like the way that they do it is just like extremely over the top, you know? Like yeah, I love how they had the, uh, <laughs> the one gremlin that was graffitiing Warner Brothers logo onto him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, it, and it, it's, it, it just sort of lends itself perfectly. I mean, this the fact that Joe Dante is such like an animation fan, a uh, classic movie fan, and it's being put out through Warner Brothers, all that stuff just comes together beautifully. I mean, for the short, and I want to watch it again just to, to see that. You cut out there first. 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 No more, Mr. Nice Guy. I knew my love of pro wrestling would come in handy one day. And now back to Parallax Views. I want to go back and watch this short uh, that you're saying was at the beginning of the movie, because I don't even recall that, the Looney Tunes short. Yeah, there's a short at the beginning, and then if you watch during the credits, Daffy Duck shows up during the credits and starts asking why you're watching the credits. He's like, everyone else left the theater. Why are you still here? You have no life. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, um, it's kind of unfortunate in a way that actually one of the last movies with Brendan Fraser uh, was, was Joe Dante Looney Tunes yeah. back in action movie. And um, a lot of people hated it. A lot of people thought it was trash, but I mean, I, I kind of think it's pretty de- I mean, as far as like a, a Looney Tunes movie, it's, it's good. Like it's good. I mean, it makes, you know, Space Jam and all those other movies, like, I I still, like, if I want to, you know, I probably haven't thrown it on in a few years, but, like, it was fun. Like, I don't, I thought he did a pretty decent job with what he was working with. Um, but, 
you know, and, and all, and, and also there's definitely some like gremlins vibes in it. Um, it still feels like a Joe Dante movie, but you know, I could see why people kind of write it off, but as far as, as I'm concerned, it might be like one of his last, one of the last Joe Dante movies that I think is actually like really watchable. Um, cause he did some, he did a few movies after that, which I did not think were great. Like the not whole, not a fan of small soldiers. Um, well, Small Soldiers came out before Looney Tunes. I think Small Soldiers is okay. Oh, okay, you were saying Looney Tunes back. In, yeah, there. Yeah, there hasn't been as much from him since Looney Tunes back in action. I've liked a few of his post Looney Tunes back in action films, but I actually I I think I only know of the whole. What else did he do after that? He did a uh, zombie rom com with uh, Alexandra Daddario. But I'm I'm literally blanking on the name of it because it it didn't get like a wide theatrical release. So yeah, he kind of I mean he's one of those directors that is really you know did some huge movies, um, was working with big studio budgets in the 80s and 90s, and then all of a sudden he just sort of uh, fell out of favor. Maybe didn't have the same box office return. Maybe Small Soldiers bombed too hard. You know, because I, I mean if you think back to Small Soldiers that movies seem pretty high budget. Like it's one of the first, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was the first movie that actually was trying to put in like that many CGI elements, like interacting with real actors. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's also one of the weirdest movies to watch because you're like, wait, this is a Hollywood movie with like anti-colonialist themes. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a strange one. I think I was going to say the only thing i really don't like about small soldiers is that the main character it sucks like the kid it almost i i think that that's what hurts the movie for me you know there's also a lesser known movie that it barely gets any mentions anymore at all from joe dante that's basically the whole thing's a, a commentary on uh nuclear armageddon and, and um, the cuban missile crisis of so matinee you seen that I have not seen Matinee, but that's the one with um, John Goodman as like a William Castle type gimmick filmmaker. Yeah. I would say that that one is probably one of his most politically subversive or just political, comp like politically themed movies. Um, so I would definitely recommend it. It's didn't get a re-release for a long ass time. And I think maybe it finally got one like on DVD. Um, but it's basically just his nod it's his love letter to like old schlocky, you know, B horror movies. And yeah, yeah. John, John Goodman is based on that real guy. You probably know who he is, where it was like, he would, he would like hire fake doctors to go to movie theaters and. and yeah. 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 And, William Castle. He would do all these gimmicks like the barf bag and, you know, like he yeah. did a movie called the tingler where halfway into the movie, uh, you know, they did shock pads beneath the, the seats. Um, yeah. All kinds of like weird gimmicks. Yeah, so that's, I mean, it, the movie is basically like a love letter to that guy, and uh, it's great. Um, I, I, I was going to say, have you ever seen his Masters of Horror episode, Homecoming? No, um, but that's the one with Jason Priestley, right? I actually don't know. Um, Homecoming was part of Masters of Horror, and uh, I mean, basically what happens is these troops come back from the Iraq War, and they come back as zombies to vote out George W. Bush. It's like an anti-war oh, really? horror short. Yeah. Oh, no. Like I absolutely I absolutely have seen that. And it, I remember it being pretty good. It, it's probably actually one of the only 
I did not love that series. That might have been one of the only episodes I remembered actually of it. So I did see that. Um, I think he might have done another one too, if I'm not mistaken. Masters yeah, he did one that was. He did another Masters of Horror called the Screwfly Solution, which That's was all one. about. Yeah, it's it's like uh, it's about global warming. And it sort of skewers like uh, the religious evangelical, right? You know, back in the 90s, he actually made fun of like anti-immigrant uh, sort of right-wingers with a movie called The Second Civil War. I was just going to mention that where Phil Hartman plays the president, which is like amazing casting. I mean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that was a made-for-TV only movie that, um, that the premise is that I can't remember who nukes who, but like India nukes Pakistan or the other way around. It's like the refugees from that situation basically get refused by certain states and then they put up the National Guard so they don't take any of the refugees in and then, it, and then that sort of the snowballs from there. Kind of reminds me of that movie um, Canadian Bacon with uh, John Candy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's got a similar, yeah. It's like it's like a it's a kind of a parody of like a civil war situation, but with some very genuinely like real uh, strong commentary about about American politics. I, I was going to say too. So the I, I was mentioning some movies he's done since then, like the whole. The one I was thinking of was Burying the X, which came out in two thousand fourteen, zombie rom com. But get this. It starred not only Alexandra uh, Dario, uh, but also Ashley Green and Anton Yelchin. And no one seems to know about this movie, which it's bizarre to me uh, because Yelchin, I think, is is pretty well known to film fans. But it does seem like Dante, you don't hear about him as much anymore. Yeah, I mean, there's some love, uh, some people who really sort of cultishly follow him and show him love. I know Vic Berger... On, as part of like the Tim and Eric Office Hours crew, is a huge fan. Um, they interviewed Joe Dante. Um, think about Virgo. and yeah, I mean, I mean, besides Vic Berger and you, I, I really don't know anyone else out there who's like a big Joe Dante fan. And you know, I think um, the Burbs uh, is one we didn't mention, um, but, the but I would say the Burbs. Great. Yeah, the Burbs is absolutely brilliant and i i think it's maybe if maybe his i would say it's probably my favorite film of his actually I, it's sometimes gremlins gets up there sometimes interspace gets up there but i think the burbs is the one that i've probably seen the most times and that like i just love it like it's tom hanks uh is absolutely hilarious in it. It's like you forget that Tom Hanks was like a comedy actor originally. Um, one of his last really good comedy roles, Carrie Fisher's still looking great in it, and she's also really funny in it. Um, Bruce Dern, I mean, it, it's probably my introduction to Bruce Dern, and like I've loved him ever since. I mean, he's he's fucking hilarious. And then Corey Feldman is almost like playing his character from Meatballs. Like they like tra- they like transplant him out of like the Meatballs series and put him in this suburban neighborhood. Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of love uh, for Joe Dante. I mean, for me. Yeah, I, and- I was going to say real quick, it's funny. I've actually met Bruce Dern before and I had him sign uh, a picture from um, the Burbs and he actually started doing the lines for me. You know, it's, it's funny. His character's name Holy is Rumsfeld. Shit. 
But he he was like, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. he repeated the line where he says about Corey Feldman. He's like, that kid's a meatball. And then uh, he, repeat, yeah. he, I think he repeated the line to me where he's like uh, talking about wiretapping um, the neighbor's phones because they think they're like satanic killers. He's like, oh, that could be arranged, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. I didn't even realize. Like, do you think that was it already referencing Donald Rumsfeld? Do you think? No, like, no, no, no. I just like that the character's name is Rumsfeld. Yeah, he's he's also as hawkish as as the real Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah. And he has this like really hot like trophy wife who's way younger than him with her tits hanging out and like I love the, that scene yeah. where uh Corey Feldman is just like great tan lines, Mrs. Rumsfeld. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um the other guy in that movie too, I, I feel like he's doesn't he didn't get enough like roles in the eighties. He was in Little Monsters with uh Fred Savage and Howie Mandel playing the bad monster. Yeah, but I was going to say Howie Mandel plays Gizmo in uh, Gremlins too. But go on. Exactly. Yes, he plays. He plays Gizmo. Uh, the guy who plays Tom Hanks' neighbor, um, like this, the, that dude. Um, God, what's his name in the movie? I forget. But the guy who like is basically like the bad influence on him. Who's you know so many quotable lines from the birds. I mean. Satan is my friend, Isabel. I want to kill everyone. I mean, like that. I mean, there's a, some uh, there's an electronic musician named Astro Botnia who made a really really good song out of that like little limerick he sings in the movie. Um, I say the phrase "it's just shit store" anyways, like all the time. Like with the scene in the Burbs when they're like trying to break into their neighbor's house with a credit card, and they just like break the credit card. Um, I, I there's so many lines. Oh yeah, the the Bruce Stearns like tells uh, Tom Hanks when are you going to take your balls out of your wife's purse I mean there's just so many great classic one-liners in that film it's also um, an interesting movie and, in light of um, in light of things like QAnon and Pizzagate like that movie was really up until the ending yeah. I guess I mean it's taking a bite out of and, and mocking the sort of satanic panic of the 80s oh it absolutely is yeah I remember the first time I showed it to someone saying like you gotta watch this movie they, they were really mad at the ending they were like, they blew, like this movie would have been brilliant if it, if they weren't actually, if the Clopex were innocent. And I'm like, yeah, I could see your point, but it's like, it's kind of almost like a reverse reverse. Like, it's like, you think you, you, the whole time you think that they're probably innocent and these people are crazy. And the, I mean, it's almost like a, a coincidence that they're not, you know, that's kind of, I mean, that's the way I read the movie. It's not like, Oh, these people were heroic and and really, you know, put themselves on the line to discover the truth. It's like, no, they were like crazy, paranoid, xenophobic uh, neighbors who just coincidentally happened to be right about them being murderers. <laughs> that's that's the way the movie reads to me. Um, and I think that's honestly funnier. Like if it was, if they were innocent, I, I don't honestly don't think it would have worked as well. Um, but yeah, I had to mention the Burbs because that one is really up there for me. And I mean. Shit, I, I probably watched. I've probably seen it maybe like forty times. Um, but inter, but since you haven't seen Inner Space, JG, I'm gonna. That's gonna be your assignment is to watch. That's my homework. Inner Space. That's your homework because I would say matinee. It's a good movie. It's not one. It's not his strongest. It's not one that I would say like you got to watch this movie only if you're have you know, only if you're Joe Dante completist. But Inner Space is a great movie like it is 
from top to bottom, a hilarious movie. It's it's kind of like in the same way Gremlins is like a horror comedy. Interspace is kind of like a comedy adventure movie, in a in a similar way to like things like Romance in the Stone or some of those kind of movies. That I honestly think it's like probably the best one. Like Back to the Future, you know, kind of as as up there as far as like a adventure comedy classic. This one is like right there with. Like I think it deserves a lot more praise and also Martin Short as far as a starring role in a film he absolutely he's he's hilarious in it first of all and he like actually pulls off the drama so like you know until you see this movie like you, I don't think people really realize like how much range Martin Short has as an actor um, which is pretty awesome and Meg Ryan's in it they Dennis Quaid in it both like very charming, like probably some of their best roles ever, honestly. Um, and uh, what's his face? You mentioned his name earlier. Um, Kevin McCarthy from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, he's in a lot of he's, Dante's he plays movies. The villain. He is. And he plays the villain in it, and he is fantastic. Like, it's the most screen time he gets in any Joe Dante movie. I mean, he's in the Twilight Zone short, um, you know, the, the Twilight Zone movie short that Joe Dante did, which as far you know talking about looney tunes that's heavily leaning into the uh the cartoon aesthetic um he's in the howling as well yeah as the I, tv producer he is and he's in piranha i think he's yeah. uh if i remember correctly he's like the old man who's like warning about what's in the water or something yeah 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 but uh but yeah man i'm and i i watch a joe dance movie with anyone anytime like i'm i'm such a big fan and I, it's probably a good time to watch Gremlins again because it's been, I mean, I haven't watched it since last Christmas, but I, I have had a tradition actually. I think since we started talking about this, I started a little tradition of like watching it every Christmas, usually Christmas Eve. And it's like probably the only holiday movie I actually watch. Uh, but I have added a new one to my repertoire and that is Eyes Wide Shut because um, that is a Christmas movie as well. And it's, um, it's a weird one. It's it's definitely one of the weirder, um, harder to digest Christmas movies out there. Um, so I, I was gonna say too. Uh, just two last things here. Um, first, I wanted to say sure. for anyone for anyone that likes Gremlins two that's listening to this, in order to fully understand Gremlins two, the new batch, there's an obscure 1941 movie you have to see called Hell's a Poppin which is literally basically the Universal Studios version of Gremlins 2 if it were done in the 1940s. Like, it, it's a movie with, like, <laughs> the Three Stooges and Frankenstein's Monster and all these different Broadway actors and surrealist humor. I mean, there's no Gremlins in it, but it's the same sort of anarchic humor. And I think Dante has even said that he, like, deliberately took from the sort of ethos of that movie, Hell's a Poppin', which I think by now it probably has a Blu-ray release, but for years it was really hard to get. So anyone who likes Gremlins 2 should see Hell's a Poppin' from 1941. Uh, last thing I was going to ask you, Robbie, here is, are you going to be watching the upcoming animated TV series, Gremlins Secrets of the Mogwai? Hey, this is the first time I'm hearing about it. Um, probably not. Unless Joe Dante is involved, but I would say probably not. Um, Zach Galligan is going to reprise. Gremlins. 
I, I was going to say, Zach Galligan will be reprising his role as Billy Peltzer, so that's good. <laughs> okay, I mean, I'll definitely check it out. I mean, uh, is it coming out soon? Is it, it's like I think it's supposed to come out in 2023. It has an order of 10 episodes, um, but I, I think it'll be on HBO Max and Warner Brothers. But yeah, it's 2023 is the current date. I mean, they've been working on it for years. The The release date is 2023 right now. Yeah, I mean, I'll check it out. Um, I remember there was plans to do a Gremlins 3 for a long time. And it was like in pre-production. And, and I think Joe Dante was involved and then he wasn't involved. And the project has been like turned on and off a few times. And I don't know what the status of it is, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, even if there were CGI, I'd still go check it out. You know, as long as it was like, like properly, you know, nested in the original movie, like what the original movie was trying to do. Um, but I, I think I would, what I'd be afraid of is that any new Gremlins thing that was trying to add any satirical elements would suffer from the same fate as like the Lego movie or something that is just throwing every pop culture reference at you that it can. Like, I think, I think that's some of the magic sauce, honestly, that's, that's in both of those movies. And especially the second one, like the reason it stands the test of time is because even though there are parodies of like eighties and nineties cultural figures, not overt, it's not too, I mean, it's on the nose, but it's also like not, you know, it's just not relying on pop culture references. So I think that that's, that's something we're going to have to see. I would be really surprised though, if a new Gremlins movie managed to not do that. Um, it just seems like everything does that now, you know, even every Marvel movie is like filled to the brim with like pop culture, like jokes and stuff. So, um, that's my wish, of course. And of course, if I was able, you know, if I did it myself, I'd be like, no, we got to use puppets. We got to use animatronics. We can't use CGI. Um, if they're going to do CGI gremlins, they might as well just make like a whole movie animated. Right. Like that wouldn't be a bad idea. You know, they were talking about doing stuff like that for a while, but I just don't see that happening. Um, so, but yeah, hopefully Joe Dante gets his second, you know, third, fourth wind gets, gets a chance to do another big movie and hopefully something cool happens with the gremlins. But I think I, I like how Dante has always said, um, you know, with Gremlins, it's funny that he even did Gremlins too, because he always has said, you know, the most unnecessary sequel of all time. And that's probably true. Gremlins 2 is probably a very unnecessary sequel because the, the first one is so compact. And, you know, it tells yeah. the story and it has its message and it sort of wraps up neatly at the end. You know, what's the need for a second one? Um, I mean, I'm glad we got a second one, but he's right. It, it sort of is something that the original stands on its own. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, some of these movies, I mean, we're lucky we got a good sequel to someone's because think about any other, like, beloved, you know, 80, I'm trying to think one of the only other movies I can think of from the 80s that got a sequel that was pretty, you know, mostly bad compared to the original was Ghostbusters. You know, similarly beloved, supernatural. It's like, we've got to make a sequel out of this. Um, but it kind of, you know, Gremlins 2, I think, will always stand the test of time of being like, there's really no other movie like this uh, from the, from that era or after. I mean, in a lot, I think a lot of people have tried to make Gremlins 2-esque movies since. I mean, even, I would even argue that Matrix Resurrections 
is very much trying to be in that same mold. It's being like, oh, if we're self-referential enough, if we're parodying our own stuff enough, and we, we could sort of be in this sort of like meta territory. Um, I still don't think anyone pulled it off, has pulled it off as what the finesse Joe Dante did. I mean, dude's a master. And he just did it so effortlessly. And, and it's, I think anybody who's into like subversive, you know, societal commentary, political commentary, you can, you can watch, you can pull new things from that movie every single time you see it. I mean, it's, it's just jam packed. So we'll leave it at that and hope everyone watches uh, Gremlins for Christmas. Uh, Robbie, how can uh, listeners keep up with your work? You're still doing Media Roots Radio. Anything else we should know about? Oh, yeah, Media Roots Radio is still my primary thing. Um, I'm still, I still have some copies of my documentary film, A Very Heavy Agenda, available on DVD. Um, but most people watch that streaming online, anyways. It's fairly old now. The documentary about sort of how the new Cold War between Russia and sort of um, the United States started like during the Obama administration um, for people who are into like, you know, following the Ukraine situation now might be, you know, they might be interested to check that out. Um, but other than that, JG, um, the thing I'm probably most focused on right now is I have been working on a, um, an AI based uh, visual. It is kind of almost like a moving graphic novel, um, but I'm using all photo realistic imagery it's all generated from scratch. Um, you know, you if you didn't know anything about AI art, you might even think that they're real photos I'm using in this. But basically, the, it's a love letter to the thing. Um, it's, you know, easily, I wouldn't say it's my favorite movie of all time, but it's like in my top five. And th this, what I'm working on is basically an homage, a fan sequel to the original thing that takes place after the thing. And... It's we're it's shaping up to be like a good two and a half hours long at this point, um, and we're we're releasing it in segments, so it's going to almost be like a trilogy, but it's it's meant to be one single film, and the first part of that trilogy uh, is coming out in like January fifteenth or around there, um, and I'll be dropping a trailer probably around the same time this comes out. So um, yeah, excited for people to see it excited to see what people's reactions will be to it because it's it's going to be weird it's not really something people have seen before so um yeah i'm pretty excited about that thank you again robbie martin for coming on parallax views thank you jd it was a pleasure well that does it for this holiday themed edition of parallax views i hope you enjoyed my conversation with robbie martin of media roots radio and, of course, if you support the work I do here at Parallax Views, please support me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, 